episode with a forensic psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host. I've gotten so many questions about a case that's been in the news that I thought it might be interesting to look at it from a forensic psychologist's viewpoint. This case involves Lori Vallow Daybell and her husband, Chad. Now, the goal here is not to diagnose anyone. I have never met or evaluated any of the parties involved, but instead is to take a look at the psychological issues that might pop up in a criminal case like this. So to get started, let me ask you a couple of questions. What would you do if someone you loved began expressing religious beliefs that just seemed delusional to you? What if you thought those beliefs could lead to violence? These are tough questions. As psychologists, there are no clear clinical guidelines to help us distinguish between normal religious beliefs and pathological religious delusions. And we can't rely on the nature of those beliefs, like how bizarre they are, how unusual they are, because when extreme beliefs are shared by a group, they can become normal in that context. Let me tell you a story about how high the stakes can be. In November of 2019, death row inmate Ron Lafferty died of natural causes while waiting to face a firing squad. He had spent 34 years on Utah's death row after he and his brother killed his sister-in-law, Brenda Lafferty, and her 15-month-old daughter, Erica. Ron and his brother, Dan, had joined a fundamentalist group called the School of the Prophets. Now, the goal of this group was to teach its bishops and its members how to receive revelations from God, and pretty soon, Ron began having them. Their younger brother, Alan, was married to Brenda. Now, Alan, too, began to believe the School of the Prophet teachings, but not Brenda. She resisted, and she fought back. And so, coincidence or not, you decide, God told him that Brenda and her daughter had to be eliminated, and so the two brothers killed them. Now, at the trial, prosecutors argued and the jury apparently agreed that Ron and Dan were not legally insane. Instead, the prosecutors argued they were extreme sociopaths and, nar sociopaths and narcissists, and it was their anger and resentment and misogyny that was talking to them, not a higher power. For years, though, the defense team and various mental health experts continue to argue that Ron Lafferty did suffer from a severe mental illness. They said that he believed his incarnation and conviction was a result of a conspiracy between the state, the church, and unseen spiritual forces, that all of his attorneys were working against him, and that one, that one of his attorneys was his, was his reincarnated sister, who later became possessed by an evil spirit. They also argued that someone with that level of mental illness was not able to assist in his own defense and was not competent to be executed. Today's case also involves religion and murder. Let's talk about Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell. So on the off chance that you have not heard about this case, let me give you some background first. So this case initially was centered around Lori Vallow Daybell who at the time was a 46-year-old mom, and she had recently married Chad Daybell in November of 2019. Now, from what some friends and family have said, 
up until the fall of 2018. Lori was a very loving and devoted mom. She homeschooled her 16-year-old daughter, Tylee, and she was very involved in her seven-year-old son, JJ's life. And JJ was not only was seven and young, but he also had autism and he was adopted as a baby. Now, recently, Lori's best friend at the time, Melanie Gibb, has come out and said that in the fall of 2018, things were not as great as a lot of people thought, that Lori was struggling with JJ, who was a handful, and that Tylee and Lori were having a lot of conflict, which of course, you know, you have a teenager and a mom, and it's not unusual for there to be some tension or some, some problems there. She also said that she met Lori's husband at the time. This was, she was married to a man named Charles Vallow, and that even though uh, to her, Charles seemed like a very nice man, a very dedicated father, that there seemed to be some tension between Charles and Lori, and she didn't really know why. So, so even though a lot of people came out initially when this case started and said that before 2000, the fall of 2018, everything was great, I think there were some cracks in, you know, in the facade of this kind of loving and perfect family at the time. However, nobody at the time, you know, nobody before the fall of 2018 and the spring of 2019 had any concerns about Lori's mental health and certainly not any concerns about the potential for violence. So in the fall of 2018, Lori meets Chad Daybell. Lori grew up a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Chad also was a member of this church. And they met at a con kind of like a spiritual retreat where he was speaking about some of his beliefs. So he had become known in the community for writing these fiction books in which he talks about spiritual prophecies and visions and talks about himself having had two near-death experiences. He talks about his spiritual gifts. And what he really was focused on was doomsday prophecy. So he had some beliefs about there being a calling out of followers coming soon. And Lori seemed very, very interested in these doomsday prophecies. And, you know, friends of hers at the time said that she just really became obsessed with his books and very, very interested in what he had to say. Initially, the connection that Lori and Chad developed appeared to be a spiritual one. However, in a very short period of time, according to Melanie Gibb, who again at the time was Lori Vallow's best friend, it became somewhat obvious that the connection was more than spiritual, if you know what I mean. So in early 2019, Lori takes Tylee and they just disappear. And Charles, her husband, has no idea where they are for like 53 days. It turns out that she's in Hawaii. And before that, Charles had become concerned about some of the things that she was saying. Uh, so, for example, he filed for divorce in February of 2019 uh, because he says that not only did she kind of desert the family, but he made some interesting claims. So he says, I'm concerned about Lori's mental health. He says that she told him that she is an assigned God who is there to lead 144,000 chosen people to the second coming of Christ. 
uh, which is coming in July of 2020, and that if he gets in her way of this mission, that she will kill him. So he is hearing some pretty alarming things, and he is so concerned that when she comes back from Hawaii in February of 2019, he tries to get her involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital for an evaluation. Now, police initially look for Lori and they can't find her, but the next day she apparently gets word that the police are looking for her for this evaluation and she shows up at the hospital where she is evaluated and released. Melanie Gibb, again, Lori's best friend at the time, was with her, not inside the evaluation, but when she came out and said that Lori came out and told her that she had passed with flying colors and that they thought she was perfectly normal. Now, that is not all that hard for me to believe. In order for her to get committed, even for 72 hours, the mental health evaluator would have had to believe that Lori was in some kind of a crisis. In every state, there are very strict criteria for a civil commitment. So let's take a look at Arizona. This was in Arizona. Arizona's civil commitment law says this. In Arizona, the court may order a patient to undergo inpatient or hospital treatment or outpatient community treatment if there is clear and convincing evidence that a proposed patient as a result of a mental disorder is either A, a danger to self, or B, a danger to others, or C, persistently or acutely disabled, or D, gravely disabled and in need of treatment, and is either unwilling or unable to accept voluntary treatment. So this is a pretty narrow window that you have to fit through in order to be involuntarily committed. So my guess is that a mental health evaluator would have of course observed Lori closely, would have asked her about her mental health history. Uh, was she seeing a therapist? Had she ever seen a therapist? Was she taking any psychiatric medication? What kind of symptoms was she having? Did she have thoughts of suicide? Did she have thoughts of hurting somebody else? You know, those kind of things. And you know, Lori could have easily said, you know, she, from what we know, Lori had no mental health history at the time. And from all accounts, Lori was a functioning adult at this time. In spite of the fact that she was expressing these unusual beliefs, she was functioning. She was driving, she was talking to people, she was buying groceries, she was, you know, parenting Tylee, she was moving back and forth. She was not somebody who was hearing voices. She um, did not appear to be severely depressed. She didn't appear to be manic. So it would not surprise me if she passed this evaluation off to the evaluators as a marital problem. And if that was the case, it makes sense they would let her go. Now, that might be really frustrating for all of us looking back, but it's important to remember that when we know the outcome of something, there is this kind of cognitive bias that we all have called the hindsight bias, also known as Monday morning quarterbacking, just meaning that when we know the outcome of something, it's very easy to look back and pick apart all the decisions, and all the things that happened leading up to it, and then apply, take the knowledge we have now and want to pretend like we had it then. 
So again, knowing the outcome of this case, it's very frustrating looking back and kind of going, why wasn't something done? Why would somebody let her go when these horrible things were going to happen? Well, of course, nobody knew they were going to happen at the time. And it's important to remember that taking away someone's freedom to hospitalize them involuntarily, there needs to be a real reason. And I think there also needs to be a belief that this is the least restrictive alternative. So in other words, it's possible that the mental health clinician did refer her for therapy or an out, outpatient medication evaluation. Maybe the clinician thought she was having some psychological problems or some marital conflict, but unless it was an emergency, there would, that would not have met the criteria for uh, her to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital and held involuntarily. So she was released. Charles and JJ, the seven-year-old, now move to Texas. And it looks like the two are going to divorce. But after a couple of weeks, it appears that Lori has a change of heart. She comes to Texas and she reconciles with Charles. Now, knowing what we know now, it's pretty clear that this attempt at reconciliation was not as, as sincere as I think that Charles hoped it would be. Because after a few weeks, she ends up taking $35,000 out of their joint account. And by the 1st of July of 2019, Lori has moved back to Arizona and Charles is still in Texas. And they are heading apparently toward a divorce. In July of 2019, Charles comes to Arizona to visit. He comes over to the house where Lori and JJ and Tylee are living, and also where Lori's brother, Alex Cox, is staying. In July, Charles comes to take JJ to school, and police get a call to come to Lori's house. When they come, Charles Vallow, Lori's husband, has been shot to death. Lori and Alex, and apparently Tylee, the 16-year-old, does confirm this, although we don't know under what circumstances, they all say that Alex and Charles got into an argument, that Charles attacked Alex with a baseball bat, and that Alex shot and killed him in self-defense. Now, police pretty much accept this, that this is what happened, which again kind of makes sense because you have three people who are all telling the same story. They don't know any of these people. There's no criminal history that we know of, although we later do learn that Alex Cox, Lori's brother, had served 90 days in prison years earlier for using a stun gun on one of Lori's ex-husbands. But again, this is not known at the time. No charges are filed. So now Charles is dead. A couple of weeks later, now we're getting into August of 2019, Lori moves Tylee, the 16-year-old, and JJ, the seven-year-old, to Idaho, which just happens to be where Charles Daybell is living. We also find out that Lori expected to inherit a million dollars in life insurance when Charles Fallow died. And as it turns out, Charles had made his sister, Kay Woodcock, the beneficiary of his will shortly before he died. 
And according to Kay, this is because Charles believed that Lori did not want JJ anymore. And that Charles believed that JJ would end up with Kay Woodcock and her husband. They were the biological grandparents of JJ. So anyway, everybody goes to Rexburg, Idaho. Chad and Lori are continuing their relationship, which appears to be heating up. As a matter of fact, there are, you know, Melanie Gibb talks about her coming to visit in September of 2019 and, you know, Chad and Lori walking around the track together, kind of holding hands and showing affection. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned, which is very important in this case, is that Chad Daybell is married and has been married for 28 years to Tammy Daybell, and they have five adult children. So Chad and Tammy are in Rexburg, Idaho, and so is Lori. And, you know, it's unclear why Chad and Lori were so obvious about their affection. Melanie Gibb says that when she questioned Lori about this, that Lori and Chad both said that Tammy doesn't come out in this part of town, but it was a pretty small town that they were living in. In September of 2019, JJ and Tylee are seen for the last time. And Tylee is last seen on September the 9th, and JJ is last seen on September the 23rd. In November, JJ's grandparents, Kay Woodcock, who I mentioned a minute ago, calls the police and says, I have not been able to reach my grandson for three months. Could you please go check on him? I'm very concerned about his whereabouts. I'm concerned about his physical health. I'm concerned about his mental health. And the police go November 26th to Lori's house. Lori says that JJ is in Arizona visiting. They find out this, in fact, is not true. They go back the next day to Lori's house, and Lori and Chad are gone. Now, I'm telling the story in this way because this is kind of how the initial thing unfolds. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a look at how the search for two missing children soon turned into so much more. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. As we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. Well, should it news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? With blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner? 
feel calmer and happier and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. Before the break, we were talking about how Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell first came to the attention of Idaho police in November of 2019. What we then also learn is that, of course, Charles Vallow had been killed in July. And in October, on October the 19th of 2019, Tammy Daybell is found dead. She apparently, quote, doesn't wake up one morning. She has no history of medical illnesses. She's training for a run. She's working. And Chad Daybell says basically on Facebook posts that, you know, his beloved Tammy, his soulmate, has died peacefully in her sleep. Again, there is no initial suspicion, which is kind of mind-boggling just because this is a healthy 49-year-old woman. But anyway, so they, he buries her within two days. So things don't really start heating up until Kay and Larry, her husband, make this call to police. And then all of a sudden they realize that nobody's seen these kids. And they go back on November 27th to confront Lori about the fact that she lied to police saying that she would, that the kid, that JJ was in Arizona. And when they go back, Lori and Chad are not there. And it takes them a couple of weeks to realize they have gone to Hawaii without the kids. Nobody has seen the kids. So, you know, things just become, I guess I should say worse and worse. The grandparents are, increasingly concerned about the children, especially JJ. They get a court order in Idaho, essentially demanding that Lori produce these kids, and she doesn't. She misses the court date. And eventually, Lori is arrested in February of 2020 in Hawaii, and she is transported back to Idaho, where she is unable to make bail and she's sitting. And still, she's not saying where the kids are. She says on a couple of different occasions that they're safe, that she's hiding them. Chad says that she's safe, that they're also safe. On June the 9th of 2020, JJ and Tylee's bodies are found in Chad Daybell's backyard. Melanie Gibb again, Lori's best friend, has come out and given a tremendous amount of information both to police and to the media. And some really disturbing things have come out 
certainly no, not more disturbing than the fact that Tylee and JJ are dead, but just some of the strange and unusual things that Lori said and that Chad said uh, leading up to this. So for example, Melanie said that over the course of 2019, that Lori would say that certain people had become zombies or had become slugs. She had asked at one point Chad Daybell to rate people that she knew, including Charles Vallow, including her kids, as to whether they were light or dark, meaning light or dark spirits. She, when she visited Lori in September of 2019, very shortly before JJ was, went, was missing, she said that Lori had told her that JJ had become a zombie the day before she got there. And she said that it was kind of disturbing to her that as she's visiting Lori, JJ, who she'd been around on numerous occasions and was, you know, had a lot of energy, ran around, was kind of up and down in terms of, you know, one minute happy, then he might get mad about things, that he was acting like he always acted. And she said that Lori would frequently point out to her behaviors that JJ was doing that were, in her opinion, evidence that he was now a zombie. She had also heard Lori refer to Tylee as a zombie. And on, you know, on a number of occasions, I think she had heard that, you know, as part of these teachings, that if somebody has kind of become a zombie, that the only way they can be released from this state was for their physical body to be killed. So, again, a lot of very, very disturbing things happening. And one of the things that's interesting is that Chad Daybell's teachings, and apparently a lot of these teachings did come from Chad, were very inconsistent with the teachings of the Mormon church at the time. And so it turns out that there was kind of a small group of people within the church who were espousing beliefs that were not consistent with the church. And What's interesting about this, because in the media, Lori has been called the cult mom. That's kind of this kind of tagline she's been given. And yet, I think when we think about a cult, most of us think about a group that is gone off and living in the desert or the mountain somewhere and is very isolated and they're very insular. And yet this is exactly not the case here. I mean, these are individuals who are working in the community, living in the community, um, going to, attending the Mormon church weekly, and yet communicating online or going to these conferences and discussing and Chad apparently is also espousing these teachings again that are very inconsistent with the church. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, things I think that was most disturbing to some of the people who were interviewed who were practicing members of the Mormon church that came out that Lori and Chad at one point went inside the temple and did a kind of a sealing ceremony which means you are kind of united, your spirit, you're kind of like soulmates. And this would be, I think, kind of 
blasphemy if you are married to other people. And I don't think you're supposed to do this yourself. So anyway, what I do know is that these, these practices were not at all congruent with the teachings of the Mormon church. As a matter of fact, Chad was excommunicated, I think in December of 2019 over some of these. So it was kind of a subgroup within the church, not as so much what we think of as a cult, but it was a group of people who were attending regular church, but they were embracing these pretty unusual beliefs. And so in addition to Chad and Lori and, and Melanie was very actively involved in this group for many, many months, as was Lori's niece, Melanie Pulowski. So now we have Charles Vallow, who is shot and killed, allegedly in self-defense, in July of 2019. We have Tammy Daybell, who is found dead by her husband, Chad, in, on October 19th of 2019. We have Chad and, and Lori marrying, marrying each other a couple of weeks later in Hawaii and coming back. And then in December of 2019, Alex Cox, Lori's brother, and the person who shot and killed Charles Vallow is also found dead. So we have five people who have died. Now, an autopsy results did come out and suggest that Alex Cox died of a pulmonary embolism. And this is clear evidence that it was a natural causes. So initially, as you can imagine, when all this started coming out, there was the belief that, you know, he must have been murdered after potentially murdering Charles Vallow. In addition, as the investigation into the death of the children, the deaths of these children progresses, the way that the police officers found the location of the bodies is by taking Alex Cox's phone and tracking the pings, which led them on September the 9th and September the 23rd to Chad Daybell's backyard. So they were able to basically get his, all of his, the pings from his cell phone and track them. And they did go out and again, find the bodies. And they are pretty convinced this is when both of the children were killed on these dates and were buried. And so Alex, we don't know who actually murdered the children, but he was clearly involved at the very least in the burial process and destroy, attempting to destroy the evidence. So that's a long, a long story, but I think it's a story that has a backdrop in looking at these kind of unusual beliefs. And there have been a lots of different opinions about whether or not Lori Vallow, let's take her for a minute, would have some kind of mental illness. Did you, in other words, we know that Charles Vallow was convinced that his wife had had some kind of a break. Uh, there was a body cam video that came out recently and he actually used those words. So what mental illness could Lori have that might explain her behavior? The main symptom that she appears to be experiencing are these strange beliefs. Are these delusions? Well, what is a delusion? A delusion is basically a fixed false belief. It's a belief that develops and that persists in spite of any evidence to the contrary. You know, one of the things that a lot of new psychologists will do um, is, you know, they'll kind of develop this belief, almost a delusion themselves, 
that if they just sit down with this patient who's experiencing delusions and kind of reason with them, then the person will see the light. People will go, oh yeah, I, I really understand now that my reasoning was off track and now that you've explained it to me, I get it. And of course, that is completely counterproductive. As a matter of fact, I remember when I was first in graduate school and doing an internship, there was a teenager who believed that he was hearing and receiving messages from the television set. And it was just such a sad, sad case because he clearly heard these messages and he, they were very, they were mean to him. They were just very critical and, and he would just get very distressed by this. And so I, you know, as a brand new psychologist wannabe sat down and, you know, I don't, I don't hear anything. And I got a couple of other staff members to sit with me and kind of, no, we don't hear anything. And of course he was baffled, you know, not by the fact that he was wrong, but he was baffled by the fact that I couldn't hear them. And of course, you know, when you think about it, that just makes sense. I mean, think about you or I talking to somebody and I'm talking to you and you're talking to me and somebody else is saying, I don't hear anything. Well, I might think something is wrong with that person, but I don't think anything's wrong with me. So delusions, if they are truly delusions, persist um, in spite of any evidence to the contrary. It's a, it's a, a, you know, kind of a faulty thinking. And if you present, if you present counter evidence, the person just thinks maybe there's something wrong with you, or if they're paranoid delusions, they might think that you are in on it. So when you look at, okay, if Lori was having delusions, let's just go with this for a minute, then what would cause that? Well, we, when you look at the psychiatric illnesses that are most likely to have delusions as a symptom, they are the psychotic illnesses, meaning the person loses touch with reality. So maybe they hear voices, maybe they see things that aren't there, they have delusions, their thinking is disorganized, their behavior is disorganized. People notice when somebody is having a psychotic break. The symptoms are not subtle. So delusions are just one symptom of a cluster of symptoms in these severe mental illnesses. And the most common mental illnesses likely to have delusions are bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and severe depression. There's no evidence that we have here that Lori is experiencing really any other symptom. There's no evidence that she's manic. There's no evidence that she's hearing voices. There's no evidence that she's severely depressed. So it's very difficult to think that she is suffering from a severe mental illness, plus she's functioning. And I can tell you, if you are actively psychotic and you go for a mental health evaluation, it's not gonna take very long for a mental health clinician to be able to spot that. Because you can imagine, if you are actively experiencing all these symptoms, it's just impossible to hide them. So I'm not diagnosing Lori. I've never seen her. I've never evaluated her. But what I am doing is saying, okay, what are the symptoms we would expect to see if these are delusions and if these delusions were caused by a mental illness? And we're not hearing anything that would be consistent with that. Now, of course, you know, people who have strong religious beliefs can also be very resistant to looking at alternative explanations. But again, we're looking at religious delusions. Typically we're talking about a mental illness. As a matter of fact, 
up to 30 to 40% of individuals who have a severe mental illness that involves psychosis will at some point develop a religious delusion. And that could be anything from, you know, I think that I'm Jesus. I think that I'm God. I think that I have these, these spiritual visions or to I'm possessed by the devil. So it can be a lot of different things, but it's a result of a mental illness. And we don't know exactly what causes delusions, but we think there's some kind of brain misfiring and that the normal processing and information that we take in and helps us make sense of things gets out of whack. And so the person begins to develop beliefs and then looks for evidence to confirm those beliefs and then distorts evidence that is disconfirming. And of course, this is somebody who has these beliefs with somebody else. If somebody has schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, they don't share the same beliefs with somebody else. Not only did Chad Daybell share these beliefs, espouse these beliefs, but we know that Melanie Gibb at one point shared these beliefs. We know that Melanie Pulowski, her niece, shared these beliefs. And so it sounds like that these were part of a group of people who had these unusual beliefs. So no matter, again, how unusual these are to us or how bizarre they may seem, they are, you know, not necessarily a reflection of a mental illness, but more a reflection of a group of people who have adopted these particular beliefs. Now, one question I've gotten is, is it possible for two people to share a delusion? And the answer is yes. There is something called folia du, which basically means kind of madness for two that has been documented going back to the 19th century. And that can kind of come about in a lot of different ways. Typically it involves two people where one person is kind of the stronger personality. The stronger personality is, has a severe mental illness. And over time, the other partner, more vulnerable partner starts sharing those beliefs and kind of adopting those beliefs. Almost always, this is the context of a long standing relationship and one in which both individuals are extremely isolated. You know, you almost think about two individuals who are living out in the country and they're not around other people. The DSM-5, is the psychology manual for diagnosing mental illnesses. And in the DSM-4 TR, which was the version before the current one, that was listed in there. There was a folia due diagnosis. It's not listed in the DSM-5. It falls under delusional disorder in general. And that just happens every time we have a new version, things are taken out, things are put in. Sometimes our views about things change or the research changes. But there is evidence that this is extremely rare. It's like less than one to two percent of the psychiatric inpatient population. So I'm not talking about, you know, among people in general. I'm talking about individuals who have been hospitalized for psychiatric reasons. It's very, very rare. And it typically involves family members. I think a third of the time it's between siblings. A third of the time it's between spouses who've been in a long-term relationship. And a third of the time it's between a parent and a child. So again, these are not beliefs just that just Chad and Lori share. These are beliefs that Chad and Lori and other people share. And Chad seems to be the primary source 
of these beliefs. Chad also, we have no knowledge of any mental illness that he has, mental health history. He was working, he was functioning, he was writing books, he was uh, you know, involved with his kids. So there's no evidence that we have you know, outwardly of any severe mental illness on his part. We're going to take a quick break. Our radio show airs every night at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern. You can also listen on Spotify, iHeart Podcast, Stitcher, and Apple Podcast. If you have an idea for a show, we'd love to hear it. You can contact me at drjoanjohnston.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Spreading the outloud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Hi, I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, death investigator, and host of A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Are you a fan of CSI shows and documentaries? Are you fascinated with how death investigators like me solve high-profile death cases like you see on the news? If so, then I encourage you to join me as I unpack some of the most high-profile police and civilian-involved death cases in my best-selling book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. Read all about the forensic evidence 
you never heard on the evening news, you can get a copy of my best-selling book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, today by ordering it on my forensic site at www.drronmartinelli.com. D-R-R-O-N Martinelli.com. And remember, without truth, there is no justice. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. So before the break, we were talking about what mental health diagnosis someone might consider if they were evaluating someone with extreme religious beliefs. We were talking about the severe mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and bipolar disorder. Now, there is another mental illness called delusional disorder, in which a person's delusions are pretty much the only symptom they have. People with delusional disorder appear normal as long as they aren't talking about their delusions. They socialize with others, they can function at work, and they don't behave in any unusual manner unless they're talking about those delusions. Unlike people with other psychotic disorders, and unlike the beliefs expressed by Lori Valley Daybell and her husband Chad, their delusions involve situations that could appear in real life, such as believing that a spouse is unfaithful or someone is spying on them. These delusions also are not shared by anyone else, and they typically appear later in life. Now there's another thing to consider. What about the possibility that Chad and or Lori doesn't have a serious mental illness, but do have a legitimate diagnosis that is contributing to these events? For example, a personality disorder. Now people don't murder because they have a personality disorder, but some of the features like lack of empathy or narcissism could make it easier for someone to consider given the circumstances. Someone with antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy or pathological narcissism, we can certainly say might use religion to manipulate people of faith into doing his or her bidding. I can't comment too much on this as we just don't have enough information about Chad and Lori. And again, I've never met either one. I can tell you that most of the people who knew Chad Daybell or Lori Vallow before 2018 would strongly disagree with those labels. Chad Daybell was married for 28 years to the same woman, had a number of friends who described him as warm and humble and compassionate. And people who were close to Lori for years also described her as a loving and caring mother who was devoted to her children and her husband. It was really in 2018 that friends of both Chad and Lori began to see significant changes in both of them. Were there red flags in Chad or Lori's personality that suggested such a capacity for lies and deception? Again, it's hard to tell. When we know the end result of a situation, it's so easy to look back and make the story fit the ending. Uh, there are certainly some inconsistencies. There's a woman named Suzanne Freeman. She was an author who worked with Chad Daybell for a number of years. She's come out and said that she really has doubts about whether he actually had ever had any near-death experiences. And she based this on the fact that she says she published several books outlining her own near-death experience that Chad was aware of, that Chad never once mentioned to her that he had ever had a near-death experience. Also, no matter how sincere Chad Dabell's religious beliefs may have been, there seems little doubt that some of his spiritual revelations were pretty self-serving. Um, at one time, for example, he talked about a spiritual visit from Tammy's dead grandmother telling Tammy to quit playing a certain video game that annoyed him. So there were some situations that really did seem that some of his spiritual visions were very self-serving. It's hard to know about Lori as well. 
before she ever met Chad, she had a history of failed marriages. She had a bitter custody dispute that lasted for years. Um, at least once she had violated a court order to allow Tylee's dad visit with her. There's also a woman named Mary Tracy who was a friend of Lori's brother, Alex Cox. And Mary has come out and said that she believes that Lori manipulated Alex Cox into attacking another of her former husbands, Joseph Ryan. So further evidence may shed light on all this. One thing we do know is whatever problems or issues or pathology Chad and Lori brought into the relationship, the relationship made things a lot worse. Somehow the two of them together transformed Chad's doomsday prophecies into murder plots. And this is just hard to get our arms around. I know it, it is for me. I mean, how could spiritual visions lead to the murder of two innocent children? And why does it seem like the people who turned into zombies were always people who stood in the way of Chad and Lori's relationship? It's hard for me to believe, and it's hard for me to think that Lori and Charles deep down really believed it. So the next thing I want to talk about is an insanity plea. At this point, Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell have not been charged with murder of the children. This is an ongoing investigation, and my sense is that additional charges will come. It certainly is possible that Lori's defense might include some kind of mental health defense, given some of the beliefs she was espousing at the time and given the lack of criminal history that she has. So let's just say for a minute that her defense attorney looked at the evidence and was considering an insanity plea. What would that involve? So first of all, it's important to realize that the insanity plea varies from state to state. In eight states in the United States, you cannot be found not guilty by reason of insanity because that option does not exist in that state. It's kind of odd when you think about it. When you think about the fact that in one state, somebody could spend years in a forensic psychiatric hospital and in another state, the person could get the death penalty for the same offense. That's how it works in the United States. Idaho is a case, or Idaho is a state where there is no NGRI, there is no insanity plea. So that will not be an option. In Idaho and in other states where there's no NGRI plea, is that essentially after the person's been found guilty, the defense attorney will have an expert talk about this person's illness, will talk about treatment, will have this person evaluated. And of course, what the expert will do is they will have to look at that person's mental state at the time of the crime. One of the biggest challenges when I do insanity evaluations and any expert who does insanity evaluations is it's almost like you're looking, you're trying to create this kind of retroactive crystal ball so it's not, how is the person sitting before me now? This person may now be on medication. This person may be talking to me just like you'd be talking to me. But when I look back at this person six months ago or nine months ago, you know, what I see are, first of all, that the person has a long history 
of a severe mental illness. The person has a long history of psychiatric hospitalizations. The person was not taking their medication at the time the crime occurred. In the police reports, the police is talking about all the bizarre things that person is saying. In the police report, I noticed that this person didn't even attempt to get away. This person just did, you know, committed this crime outwardly and made no attempt to get away. Those are all things, of course, that would help me uh, feel comfortable or feel confident that maybe this person uh, was acting under the influence of a psychotic illness at the time that this crime occurred. Now, of course, any forensic psychologist knows that you don't take the defendant's word for it, right? When somebody comes in my office as a patient or a client, then I'm not trying to verify what they're telling me. If, I, if they say I've been married for 20 years, I'm not saying bring in your marriage license so I can make sure. But in a, in a forensic context or in a legal situation, I know that this person has a lot at stake and it would be understandable for this person to lie or you know, minimize or distort things. And so I'm going to want to try to verify everything this person is telling me. So I'm going to be looking again at police records. I'm going to be looking at witnesses. I'm going to be looking at this person's psychiatric history, medical history, et cetera, et cetera, to try to get a sense of what this person, how this person was functioning at the time this crime occurred. And, you know, in Idaho, if this expert did evaluate this defendant and believe that the defendant was legally insane, which of course is different from mentally ill. So in order to be legally insane, typically it involves the person was, you know, so impaired, they either didn't know what they were doing was wrong or they couldn't appreciate that what they were doing was wrong. So it's not just they're just mentally ill, it's that they were so mentally ill that they didn't even understand that what they were doing was wrong or they couldn't appreciate it. So in, in, in Idaho or another state that doesn't have the NGRI plea, they basically will have an expert evaluate the defendant and then essentially throw themselves at the mercy of that judge to take it into account and potentially reduce that sentence. The insanity plea is one of the most misunderstood defense strategies. It is very rarely used. And the reason for that is because it rarely works. So it is used in less than 1% of all criminal proceedings. And in those minority cases, it's successful about 25% of the time. It is very difficult in a way to be so severely mentally ill that you can't understand that what you're doing is legally wrong. So the legal part of this case is just beginning, and as with all defendants, Lori Vallow-Daybell and Chad Daypell, of course, are innocent until proven guilty. It'll be really interesting to see if a forensic psychologist is actually used at the trial, and if so, how and why. Today's show was a look at just some of the possibilities. Thanks for listening to The Forensic Psychologist, and we'll see you next time.